Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. On this Sunday, the day after Christmas, we're going to look at this birth narrative of Christ. As you're finding your place there, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream, the venue service, and Reach Church DeSoto. We're so grateful you're with us. Um, Some of you may have seen earlier this morning, we had a disaster relief team headed out to some of those eastern states, uh, Kentucky, those areas that were affected by uh, the tornadoes recently. So keep them in your prayers as they go out to meet physical needs, but also to meet the spiritual needs and to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. We've had a wonderful weekend worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at all of our campus over Christmas Eve we had about 3,200 people walk in our doors and, and countless others who joined us via our live stream. And we're just so grateful that you were here and pray that you and your family had a wonderful Christmas. But Luke 2, this, this birth narrative, probably one of the most uh, read passages in all of God's Word. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find another chapter in God's Word that's been read more than this chapter, maybe Psalm 23. But other than that... Uh, This chapter is kind of unrivaled in terms of its attention that it gets, especially this time of year. The beauty of uh, Luke chapter 2 is that it's incredibly simple. Um, It it demands very little explanation. In fact, if you read the commentaries, oftentimes the commentary on this chapter is very thin. Uh, There's not a lot that needs to be explained. The text is clear. Um, There's no real areas of difficulty for interpretation. The only issue is, will you believe it? Uh, It is incredibly profound. Uh, We read this so much that I think sometimes this passage and what God does here loses its wonder to us. This is the record of the incarnation of God. In this text, we get a narrative of how God himself put on flesh And came to dwell among us. The God of all creation. The one who spoke everything that we see into existence. The one who holds it all together. How he laid aside his glory and put on flesh so that he could be born and so that he could die for our sins. It's simple and yet it's incredibly profound. A child can understand it. And a believer of over 50 years can still find depth and stand in awe of it. It's the center point of all of God's word. It's the apex of God's word. All of the Old Testament looks forward to this moment. You remember even as we studied in Genesis, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right there, what we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall of man, God makes the promise that he'll send somebody, that the seed of the woman, one man will come and he will crush Satan's head, but he'll be wounded on the heel. That God declared all the way back there that I'm going to send somebody. And remember, even as we traced our way through Genesis, that he'll be of, uh, of Seth and Noah and Shem and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And all the way through the Old Testament, God is whispering, he's coming. He's coming. Even the last book, the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, the, the Old Testament ends with Malachi saying that before the Christ comes, there'll be a forerunner coming in the spirit 
of Elijah. And then with the intertestamental period, you get 400 years of silence. And then you remember in Luke chapter 1, when a man named Zacharias goes in before the presence of the Lord, God breaks his silence and said, he's coming. And when you get to Luke chapter 2, here he is. Christ arrives on the scene. And so on this day after Christmas, I, I just want us to simply walk through this text, stand in awe of its beauty and wonder. Uh, when we went to Israel, there were certain points and places where the, those locations needed very little explanation. And you just wanted the tour guide to be quiet. Stop talking. Let us just enjoy the wonder of this place. And that is my prayer this morning as we look at this text that is probably familiar to all of us that again we'd see the wonder in God having come for us to save us from our sins. So let's pray together then we'll work our way through it. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so clearly to us. God, you've made, us, made it plain what you have done, that you've loved us and you came to save us. I pray today we'd see the wonder and the beauty of your love it's demonstrated in Christ, who came to live and to die for our sins. Bless us now and bless the study of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look first at Christ's arrival in verses 1 through 7. Look there in verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger." Because there was no room for them in the inn. The first thing we see here is this census. Uh, Caesar Augustus, the nephew of Julius Caesar, he takes over after Julius Caesar's death. He's an arrogant man. Augustus means honorable. He has given himself the title Caesar the Honorable. And he decrees a census. Uh, it was a very humiliating thing for the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel, the whole purpose in taking a census was to tax them. And they would pay these taxes and essentially they were paying the Roman government to rule over them. And so it was a humiliating thing. You'll remember scripture tells us that Christ came in the fullness of time, in the darkness of this nation's life and history. The light of God begins to shine in the darkness. And so he decrees this census. We know of three censuses that were taken, but none in which the people were required to go to their hometown. But right here, what we see is that God is overriding the heart of a king and he is decreeing a census so they'll go to their hometown. Because God had declared in the Old Testament prophet of Micah that Jesus would be born where? In Bethlehem. And Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth. And it's not like Joseph and Mary woke up one day and said, we're in Nazareth. And the Old Testament said we gotta be born, he's got to be born in Bethlehem. So we've got to get on down to Bethlehem. No, what God does is he overrides the heart of a king. 
And again, we're reminded that God is sovereign over history. We see it in Revelation very vividly in all the events that occur there. While Satan might be maneuvering, God is overriding for his perfect purposes and plans. And so it is here that God sends out this decree through Caesar so that Mary and Joseph will go to Bethlehem. So we see the city in verses 4 and 5. You know, where, where you come from says a lot about you. If you're from Oklahoma, you're obviously bright, intelligent, and an amazing individual. That's what Oklahoma is associated with. But uh, Indiana, the, all the greats come from Indiana, don't they, Jim? It's, yeah, not so much. But uh, <laughs> where you're from says a lot about you. In Jesus' day, Athens was known for the intelligent. That's the scholar. It was the Cambridge. It was the Harvard. That's where the intelligent were from. Uh, if you were from Rome, you were associated with the mighty. Uh, Rome was the place where the mighty come from. Jesus is from Nazareth. The, the, the name on the cross will say what? It'll say Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, you've heard me say this before, it's in Galilee. It was the most irreligious place, despised place in all of Israel outside of Samaria. Uh, Nazareth was so far to the north that it was difficult for them to go down and worship at the temple. They were so far in the north that oftentimes they had to trade with the Gentiles. No great man came from there. It's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, whoever the Messiah is? In other words, he can't be this guy. Because that city is too despised. But what do we know? We know as according to scripture, Jesus humbled himself. He came to a lowly place. Why? Because it's a reminder to us that Jesus didn't come to save the mighty or the smart or the wealthy or the religious. He came to save sinners. And so Christ will come as low as a person can come to remove all obstacles from you and I coming to him. You know, a little later, we look at the shepherds, and the angels tell the shepherds that he's born in a manger. I wonder if the angels had told the shepherds that he was born in a palace. I wonder if the shepherds would have said, well, we can't go see him because people like us could never get into a palace. But Jesus is born in a manger in a lowly city so that he could remove all the obstacles. Listen, if there's any obstacle in your life that's preventing you from coming to Jesus, it's not because there's any obstacle in him. The only obstacle would be in you. He comes to a lowly place. It says even here to Judea, Judah. God had declared back in Genesis 49 as, as the blessings were pronounced upon the children uh, of Jacob. You remember that it was said that the scepter will not depart from Judah, until Shiloh comes. And then the city of David, Bethlehem, just as I said earlier, Micah had prophesied that the child will be born in Bethlehem. And Joseph is a descendant of David. God had promised David that one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. Why? Because David was a type of Christ. You remember it's David who... Uh, who lays down his life as the people are being judged for his sins. But also, you remember, David is known as the one who was chosen of God. He's the good shepherd. 
and he was rejected by his family. He had to leave the city quickly under the cover of darkness. But as he goes away, he takes a bride to himself called uh, the beloved of God, Abigail. And then he returns suddenly. He's installed as king, and he puts down the rebellion, and he rewards the, those who were loyal and righteous. Does that sound familiar? Of somebody who is chosen of God? Somebody who is the good shepherd? Somebody who was rejected by their own nation? Somebody who left under the cover of darkness, but then goes forth and takes a bride to himself called the church? the beloved of God, and somebody who will soon come and suddenly come and he will put down the rebellion and he will reward the righteous and the faithful. Does that sound familiar? David is a type of Christ. And so Jesus will be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. God is telegraphing who the Savior will be. There's only one person it can be. All the Old Testament prophecies and promises point us to one person, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And then you'll see in verses 5 through 7 the circumstances of his arrival. Verse 5 tells us that Joseph and Mary are engaged. They were betrothed. It's more significant than an engagement, but most importantly, it's a reminder to us that Mary and Joseph have not come together. She is a virgin. And this is incredibly significant. If Jesus is just uh, born of Joseph, then he is a sinner like you and me, and he cannot die for our sins. But Scripture makes abundantly clear that Mary is a virgin. Mary considers herself to be a virgin. She tells the angel, you, you remember, uh, how can this happen since I have not been with a man? Joseph considers her a virgin. He desires to put her away quietly. The angel considers her to be a virgin because he says nothing is impossible with God. A man and a woman's conception of a child is not impossible. It is probable and it happens all the time. No, this is a woman who has never known a man. Matthew, Luke, God, Gabriel, Joseph, and Mary all consider her a virgin. And those are what you call primary sources. Listen, Jesus is not just a man. He is the virgin-born son of God, and he is miraculously conceived. The only explanation for the birth of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Scripture leaves no doubt. And it says here that he was wrapped in cloths. Uh, when, when a baby was born, you would wash them in water, and then you would rub them in salt. I was reading the commentaries again, and some say that they rubbed the whole body in salt, and some just the lips. But either way, they would rub the child in salt, and salt was a picture of purity and holiness. It was the parents demonstrating that we want this child to be holy. We want this child to be pure. And then they would take the baby and they would wrap them really tightly in claws. And they would wrap their legs straight. They'd put the legs straight out and they'd wrap them tightly. And it was a symbolic way of saying that we want this child to walk straight with the Lord. Uh, it's kind of like a, like a baby dedication or a, as we like call it, a parent dedication. That we're dedicating our lives to ensuring that this child is holy. And this child walks straight with the Lord. But do you see the irony of this? 
as they rub this child, Jesus, in salt, symbolically saying we want him to be pure, when he is in fact the Holy One of God. And from his mouth will proceed the Holy Word of God. And they wrap his legs straight, and he, he will be the perfect Lamb of God. He will always say no to sin, always say yes to God, and he is the beloved of God. This is my beloved son, because he always walks in perfect obedience to the Father. So all the signs and symbols have been fulfilled in the substance of Christ. And they laid him in a manger. This manger was probably a large stone carved out in the middle. uh, And then brass rings at each end. You would tie your donkey or animal to it. You place barley or wheat into the center portion, the carved out portion. So your animals would eat there. You'd tie them up and they could eat there. But the picture here is that Jesus comes as lowly as a person can possibly come. It's as high as a person can be from full angelic worship and the glory of God to a feed trough, to a manger, to the filthiness of animals and ultimately death on a cross. It is referred to as the greatest descent ever known to man. From as high as a person can be to as low as a person can possibly go. Why? For your sins and mine. This is the height of love. If you can find a greater Savior, please tell me about him. This is the height of love. From the glory of God in heaven to a manger for you and for me. And it says there was no room for him in the inn. Um, John tells us that he came into the world and the world did not recognize him. Isaiah 53 says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And here is the Savior of the world, condescended for their salvation. He's right in front of them and they missed him. And the fact of the matter is there's a lot of people who still miss him today. Men and women who are far too busy and have too much going in on in their life and they have no room for Christ. God's greatest gift right in front of them and they miss him. And then we see the announcement in verses 8 through 17. Look there, verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. It's amazing, the first group to hear the good news of Christ's birth were the shepherds. 
The shepherds, they didn't just get the first announcement. They got the most amazing announcement. They got a whole choir of heaven singing just for them. Let me ask you this. When your child, when your son or daughter was born, who was the first person that you told? Whoever was the first to hear of the birth of your son or daughter was probably somebody that was very important to you. The first recipients of the good news that Christ had been born were these shepherds. Shepherds were lowly individuals. They stunk, literally. They spent most of their time around sheep that are some of the smelliest animals on the face of the earth. And having spent time with those animals, they got that stench upon them. And so it was a lowly job. The first people to get the announcement of Christ's birth were these shepherds. What does this tell us about God? That God loves all of us. There's no one so low, no one so stinky, so no one so sinful that he can't save them. The beauty and the wonder of God's love. And the angel's report to these shepherds is don't be afraid. Why? Because we got good news. There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Love this. There is born for you. I think these shepherds probably knew of the prophecies concerning the coming Christ and Messiah. They knew that God would send somebody. Then they knew God would send a Messiah. But I can't help but wonder if they thought that's for other people. That's for the religious. That's for the righteous. That's for the powerful. But the news of these angels is that you as shepherds, God has come for you. I've said this many times this Christmas. Christmas really hasn't gotten into your heart and your life until you start using first person pronouns. Until you realize that God left the glory of heaven. Yes, for the world, but most importantly, for you. As I was thinking about the promises that God made to Abraham, how God took Abraham outside and caused him to look up at the stars and said, someday your descendants will be more numerous than those stars that you will be the father, the father of faith, the father of those who will trust in Christ, in my Messiah. And I can't help but think that one of those stars that Abraham saw represented you. The beauty of God's word is that God loves the whole world, but most importantly, that he loves you individually. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew you before you were born. He loved you when you didn't love him. And he came. He came for you. And it says that the angels tell these shepherds, this will be a sign for you. That you'll find a baby wrapped in claws, a newborn. But that's not unusual. I suppose there were probably many newborn babies in Bethlehem at that season. But here's the unusual sign. You'll find a baby lying in a manger, in a feed trough, a baby among beasts. 
Now that's unusual. And the response in verse 15, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened. See, when you find out that God has left the glory of heaven and he's come to be born for you, you don't think about it. You don't say, well, we'll go check that out in a few weeks when we don't have anything else going on in our lives. No, when you find out about a Savior who's come for you, you know what you do? You leave immediately and you go see that child. You know, the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his heart, or hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. When you learn about a Savior come for you, you immediately go, and you find him, and you trust him. And so here are these men. They put everything else on the back burner. Whatever else they had going on in our life, we're going to go see this child. We're going to go meet this Savior. Nothing else matters. Everything else pales in comparison to where you will spend eternity. You can't afford to miss out on this. It's just like the disciples. When the disciples met Jesus, he said, follow me. They left everything. I was recently studying again Peter. I love Peter. And Peter meets Jesus. I wanted to go back and remind myself of how Jesus met Peter. And, and Peter, you remember, he's out there fishing. He'd been fishing all night and he hadn't caught a thing. And he's cleaning his nets on the shore. And Jesus walks up with this huge crowd. He's teaching. And Jesus, what does he do? He just goes and gets in Peter's boat. And I can't help but think that Peter was a little bit irritated by that. Who does this man think he is getting in my boat without asking permission? And Jesus just gets in Peter's boats and begins to use Peter's boat as a preaching platform. And he preaches to this large crowd. And then you remember what does Jesus do? He looks over and Peter goes, hey, Peter, let's push you out a little ways and go fishing. And I can't help but think that Peter's saying to himself, hey, the theology, that's great. You stick with that part. But the fishing deal, leave that to me. You may know theology. I know fishing. We haven't caught anything. We're not going out. But Peter decides, couldn't hurt. He gets in the boat with Jesus. They push out. They go out in the water. And wouldn't you, there's certain moments, wouldn't you have loved to just been there? And Jesus says, throw the, throw the nets in. They throw the nets in. And as they begin to draw them back, the nets are so heavy they begin to break. And they have to call in another boat. And they call in the other boat. And they bring in the nets. And the load of fish is so heavy that both of the boats begin to sink. Now remember, at this point, there's not a lot of miracles happening in Israel. But I guarantee you, Peter knew of the Old Testament miracles. And the minute he begins to see what is happening here, do you know what I think Peter thinks? We got God in the boat and we didn't even know it. And you remember, he says, I'm a man of unclean. I, I am a sinner. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And Jesus says to him, Peter, from now on, you're going to be fishermen of men. Come follow me. And you know what Peter says? It says he left everything. Left his nets. Left his business. Left his family. And did what? He followed Jesus. See, when you meet Jesus and when you understand who he is and when you understand what he did for you, you gladly leave everything else behind because what you find in Jesus is greater than anything you have to give up. And the things of the world just kind of grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. 
So these, uh, these shepherds, they leave everything and they go and they encounter the Christ. And verse 17, they tell others, they made known the statement. You can't keep this kind of good news to yourself. When you find out there's a Savior that comes for you, when you find out that through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven, you can be placed on a new path, you can have the confident assurance of heaven simply by believing in Jesus. When you come to know that kind of good news in your heart, you can't help but tell other people. It's just like the Samaritan woman who came to know Jesus, trusted him. She went back to her village and she tried to tell everybody. The garrison demoniac was harming himself. He was harming others. He was out of his mind. Does that sound like the world today? Out of their mind. Hurting themselves, hurting others. He meets Jesus. He's clothed. He's seated. He's in his right mind. At the end of the story, you know what the garrison demoniac's doing? He sneaks in. It's one of my favorite parts of that story. He sneaks in the boat. He's hoping they don't see him. He just wants to be with Jesus, and he's ready to go on a mission trip. And Jesus says, nah, hey, get out. Stop it. I see you. Get on out. And then he tells him what? You got to go back and tell your family. You go make known. When you meet Jesus, if you've really met Christ and you've received the free gift of salvation, you can't help but tell other people. And then look at the amazement in these final verses, 18 through 20. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in their heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So it says here that, that, that essentially the world is perplexed. All who heard it wondered at the things which were told them. A miracle has taken place. No, no miracles were occurring at that time. God has been silent since the end of Malachi, 400 years. And now imagine a bunch of lowly, stinky shepherds showing up and telling you that a baby has been born in a manger. Angels told you about it. He's the savior of the world. And he came to save us, and he came to save you. And guess what the world's reaction was? They were perplexed. They can't get their minds around this. And the same is true today. Listen, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. The world is still perplexed. Listen, when you go out, think about what we tell people. We go out and tell them that God is real. He made everything we see, and he loves us so much, he left the glory of heaven, born of a virgin, put on flesh, lived a perfect and sinless life, died on the cross, a substitutionary death, not for his sins, but for yours, was placed in a tomb, was raised on the third day, ascended to the Father, sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on our behalf, and one day he's coming back to judge the quick and the dead. And the world looks at us like we got three heads. They are still perplexed to this day. The world wonders at this. And then you see that Mary ponders. Mary doesn't fully grasp it all. She's not some kind of co-redemptress. She's just like us. Even in the Magnificat that we looked at last week, she calls Jesus, who will be born, my Savior. This is a woman who knew, I need salvation She's a great woman of faith and a great example to all of us. But she still needs salvation. This is just a mother 
A mother who's trying to take in all the things that were happening in her life. But certainly just a woman as much of need of salvation as you and me. And then finally we see the shepherds praise. I love this. It says the shepherds went back. Meaning they go back to their jobs. Their stinky, lowly jobs. But now what? They have a skip in their step and a song in their heart. You know, it's amazing. These shepherds, um, most believe that these were shepherds of uh, the tower of the flock, a group of Levitical shepherds just outside of Jerusalem, and their whole job was to raise unblemished sheep for sacrifice. They would basically sell these sheep to people who would then take them to the, tabernacle, or to the temple and, and sacrifice them for the forgiveness of their sins. The angels show up and tell these shepherds, essentially, somebody's coming who's going to put you out of business. Because people aren't going to need your sheep anymore. So, I'm not sure what they went back to, but whatever they went back to, now they had a skip in their step and they had a song in their heart because they had met the Savior of the world. You know, you and I, just because we place our faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that life suddenly goes perfectly smooth for us. In fact, if you come to faith in Christ, life, in fact, just might get more difficult for you. Just because you know Christ doesn't mean that we don't get cancer. It doesn't mean that we don't have relational problems. It doesn't mean that we don't have vocational problems. It doesn't mean that we don't have financial problems. We face all the problems that the world faces. But now we have a skip in our step and a song in our heart because we met the Savior of the world. He's changed us from the inside out and he has promised us that one day we will be with him forever in heaven. So I just imagine these shepherds going back wherever they were going back to and they're singing as they go and they're skipping as they step because the joy of the Lord is in their hearts. Can I ask you, do you have that joy in your heart this Christmas? And when I was thinking about that joy, I couldn't help but think of a, there was a man in, in, in our church back in Alabama named Mr. Wayne. And uh, Wayne's family came to faith in Christ. Many of his family trusted in the Lord and got baptized. And they were praying for Wayne, that he would come to know the Lord as well. And finally, one Sunday, he came. He sit over. I can still picture him sitting over on a side pew and there for the service. And after the service, I said, hey, Wayne, I'd love to take you to lunch sometime. And he said, sure. So we planned a day. I went and picked him up. He was the meat manager at the local Piggly Wiggly. And uh, I went to pick him up, Mr. Wayne. There he was. And we were headed to get a burger at the best burger joint in town, Merle's Diner. And so I had him in my vehicle, and I just began to, on the way over, I just began to tell him about Jesus, tell him about the gospel and the good news of Christ. And we got in line, and I'm still talking to him about Jesus, and we order our burgers, and we wait for him, we get our burgers, and we sit down. And before we had even touched our food, I had an opportunity to ask Mr. Wayne, would you like to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior today? 
And at this point, tears were just streaming down his face. It doesn't always happen this way, but the Lord had obviously been working on this man. And right there, over a greasy cheeseburger, Wayne trusted in Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And I'll tell you, God turned a switch on in that man. And he became one of the most joyful men I have ever met in my life. There were few people. He got to church early and he was so thankful and so grateful to be there. And one of the things he noticed, he got baptized and he was so excited about getting baptized and then he would see other baptists and he'd say, Pastor, why do these people not get excited when somebody gets baptized? And you got to know, Mr. Wayne, there was no bigger Alabama fan in all the world than than Mr. Wayne. He actually had a marquee in his front yard. And after every Alabama football game, he'd put the score of the game up on the sign. And if they lost, he'd just put roll tide anyway. That's what he would say. But his word to me was, if I can get excited about a team scoring a touchdown, why can't I get excited when a sinner comes to faith in Christ? And he asked me, do you mind if I create a bit of a ruckus when somebody gets baptized? And I said, Wayne, you go for it. And I tell you, when somebody get baptized, he'd be the first to jump up out of his pew and raise his arm and hoop and holler. He said, if the angels are going to rejoice, I think I should. He found the joy of Jesus. And it permeated every aspect of his life. Do you have that joy this Christmas? The joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that all that is needed for your salvation has been completed. That through faith in Christ you're forgiven and your eternal destinations is so secure that we can talk about it in the past tense. If you don't know that joy, there's only one place to get it. And it's in this child, the Savior who was born And lived and died for you. He's a prayer away. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only begotten son to come and to live and to die for our sins. God, I pray that there's anybody watching online or anybody in this room this morning that doesn't know you that Today would be the day of salvation for them. They wouldn't put it off any longer. That today they would trust in Christ. Their sins forgiven, reborn from the inside out through the power of the Spirit, set down a new path and a path that leads to eternal life. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would be joyful. There's so many things that creep into our lives that try to steal our joy. Sometimes it's just the busyness of life. God, I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. His joy was knowing that he was accomplishing our salvation. His joy was you. His joy was me. God, I pray with all my heart that our joy 
would be you. So that no matter what we face, no matter what circumstances come our way, we would demonstrate to this world there's a joy that overcomes all situations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way Christ is leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you just want to pray. This is your time. Know this morning, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.